Hey guys, it's Table here with the Sustainable Cell Development Podcast again, and hereby I'm presenting to you this really cool part two of my interview with Lyle McDonald. Part one went live last week, and in that interview we talked about why the role of psychology is so underrated in fitness and for people wanting to lose fat, and also talked a bunch about flexible dieting and if it fits your macros and what it has done to the fitness industry, why some people have taken it a bit too far and for whom it might be more appropriate than for others. And in this episode, we will still touch on those same problems, but we will talk a bit more about binge eating, overeating, why people get disinhibited and how diets fail the very famous I ate a cookie syndrome where people turn minor slip-ups into disasters by losing their minds. And we will touch on how certain personality types might be better suited for certain nutritional strategies than others. And lastly, we will briefly cover the whole issue of slow versus rapid weight loss and the pros and cons of each. So I really love this episode and I hope and I'm positive that many of you will love it too. Lyle is a real mastermind when it comes to these things, so I'm positive that it will provide a bunch of value to many of you guys. So I won't waste any more of your time. As usual, use the timestamps to navigate between the topics we discussed. And without further ado, let's hear the good word from Lyle McDonald. And and, and what you just mentioned about this uh, kind of psychological hurdle when people feel like, okay, I'm not really making progress, but I'm not really enjoying myself either. This is a perfect dovetail into uh, one of your pet peeves, which is the I ate a cookie syndrome. To me, it's one of the most fascinating psychological constructs because um, I think rationally, nobody would, like anybody knows that it doesn't make sense to throw a whole bunch of damage on top of damage. But First, I think like to to give a, a personal anecdote, just a week ago, I, I'm cutting currently. At the very last meal of the day, I realized that the cottage cheese kind of thing that I was eating, it basically it completely misrepresented the calorie count that it had and because it just didn't add up. And I realized that because of that freaking cottage cheese, I eliminated the entire day's deficit, but with, like out of my own fault, basically. And that was that was a very, very difficult thing to deal with on an emotional and psychological level because it was like, okay, I dieted throughout the whole day and in the very last meal of the day, I basically blew my day's progress, which of course in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't make like it doesn't make a, a dent in the whole progress because I have to diet for two more months. But still it was like, okay, then at least I might as well enjoy myself. And luckily I didn't binge, but sure. I felt the urge being there. And, and I like, that's almost doubly frustrating. Like if you had 500 calories of, you know, ice cream or yogurt or whatever your treat food is, they're like, fine, I, I blew my deficit, but at least I, yeah, I, I totally, I, I do get that. And it's, this is one of those places, again, it's easy to say, don't do this. And in premise, logically, it makes total sense, but logic and emotion are very much not the same thing. And this is this is one of those things that even, you know, the, the early disinhibition research got into was like, okay, what's what's the driving force behind this? And they, they originally kind of conceptualized it as, you know, the what the hell effect originally, which is the like, well, I've blown my diet or gone over some calorie limits, so what the hell? If I'm 200 over, I might as well be 2,000 over which is logically illogical, but emotion, you know, 
humans are not necessarily logical creatures. There's been other people feel that there's kind of different stuff going on and it gets into a whole, a whole bunch of tedious self-regulation and, and goal strengthening and goal weakening stuff out of social psychology that I don't, I don't remember well enough right now to get into. Not everyone agrees about the what the hell effect that that's what's driving the bus. Um, you know, there's the willpower model and some people feel it's like, Oh, it's just, you, you've, you've used willpower to stick to your diet. And the reason you lapse in the first place is because you've depleted your ego and willpower and all that Baumeister research stuff. Um, that actually gets into the whole going back really quickly, the, that simple rules diet, right? Every day we have to make hundreds of decisions and hundreds of choices that regarding what behaviors we're going to get. And we, you know, the, the, the willpower model is that this is a biological something that can be depleted. And there's a bunch of argument over this right now about what it is and if it's exists. And if you tell people that they have willpower depletion, they do this. And if you tell them they don't, they don't all this other stuff because humans are weird. And, but the point is that if you take those food choices out, it's one less set of choices you got to make every day because we live in a high stress world environment where we got to make tons of them every single day. And it's exhausting. And what's funny getting even further off topic is, you know, they're like, Oh, you know, people who just have their lives dialed, right? People that just have it together, man, they just have willpower. Well, actually it's not, it's not completely true. If you give them a, if you give them a set of choices, if you give them a set of experiments for willpower depletion, that is something novel for them they're just as bad as everybody else. What people who seem to have their life in control have done is they have made an aspect of their life choice-free, right? Mm. Everybody's seen this trite meme that shows that successful people, Bill Gates does it, Mark Zuckerberg does it, a lot of people that are very successful, they wear the same clothes every day, right? Now, A, it's probably because they're slightly socially dysfunctional. And as someone who has T-shirts in gray and black and nothing else, I can relate to this. However, every morning when they get up, this is one less set of decisions they got to make because they're facing eight hours in a boardroom having to do a lot of work, worrying about matching their clothes and matching their tie and suit in this. That's just a set of not only decisions, but almost pointless decisions that they are wasting brain power on. So diet can be the same way. And I do think a lot of the clean, a lot of that stuff, it simply eliminates the choices that we have to make that gets into life. So that gets into the whole, in any event, the cookie thing, which you're getting at is like, yeah, this, that's another factor, right? It, it's great to go, ah, don't blow your diet, but you ended up in a situation accidentally, which almost makes it worse. Right. And th this is something I've ranted about. I think part of the reason flexible dieting strategies work, is they put the dieter in control of the diet rather than the diet being in control of the dieter. Yeah, I got that right. Okay, so most people, and again, we're talking general public. They're dieting, they're dieting, they're dieting. They eat a cookie, they feel guilty, you know, guilt spiral, shame spiral, whatever pop psychology you want to get into. The diet is controlling the dieter, right? The whole thing with the, the diet break and all that, they gave the study, they did that study and said, we're going to diet. They wanted to look at what happens when people fall off a diet. And they go, we're going to diet you hard. And we want you to take two weeks off. Because they wanted to see what these people did. And what they did was nothing. They didn't fall off their diet. They didn't gain weight. Nothing happened. And the researchers were like, oh, well. we like they, 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 com they completely failed in the study design. But what they found 
was I, what I thought was more fascinating. And I talked about this in my first, in that flexible dieting book, because I think what the difference was if you're dieting and you have to go out of town and you fall off your diet, you're not in control of that. And control is a big aspect of stress relief. Uh, a lack of control causes far more stress. If you go, you know what? Tomorrow I go to maintenance because it has a physiological benefit and I will buy the food I'm going to eat. You are making a conscious decision and you are in control of that choice. And I think that is a big difference in the attitudinal aspect of this stuff. Knowing that you can do this and you are in control of your diet is very different than having it happen and going, I screwed up. And in your case, I think that's part of it. There's all, in, on top of not enjoying yourself, on top of losing a day, losing a day of dieting because you didn't lose that seventh of a pound. <laughs> Woo! Um, it wasn't in your control because I bet yeah. if you'd chosen to eat that, you chosen to whatever overeat your Greek yogurt, uh, whatever or whatever food you picked, I, I bet it would have changed the psychology of it. And that, and that's part of that di disinhibition effect. There's a whole bunch of different stuff. Stress makes people far more likely to become disinhibited. This is why people that are trying to quit smoking, when do they go, or people are trying to quit drinking, when do they go have a drink? Oh, man. Work stressful. I significant others yelling at me. I don't know how I'm going to pay my bills. That's when they drink. Because stress, whatever, ego depletion, whatever the mechanism is, shuts you down. It causes just this thing that you're just like, I can no longer make a conscious choice to do this and, or I need a treat or whatever. It becomes a stress release because for whatever reason. Um, so I would tend to think that that's kind of part of what's going on. Um, usually the, the, I had a cookie thing is I think it's, it's that what the hell effect, which is a little different than what you're talking about. But again, these are all these kind of individual it would be interesting for you to take one of the questionnaires. Uh, forget what it's called. Um, the questionnaire that basically tests you on your restraint, disinhibition, and there's another construct they use. And it's just it's like a seven or ten question questionnaire, and you just rate the numbers. You might go find one of those and take the quiz, or take the test real quick, and just see where you fall. And you might very well find that you are not only somewhat rigid, but have a high disinhibition score because mm -hmm. that's what questions tend to um, uh, determine and, you know, something that might be interesting to do. Um, it's called the three-factor eating questionnaire is, you know, might be interesting for people going, you know, is to actually take a couple of these, you know, that would be something I really should put, you know, take one and maybe that can lead into how people should approach their diet basically determine their psychology um, ahead of time to see kind of where they fall on these different constructs. And this, you know, because if someone, it's, it's a matter of identifying weak points, is if someone's weak point is being extremely rigid, well, you need to target that. If someone's issue is being, becoming very easily disinhibited, well, maybe that's something you need to target strategically in terms of let's work out practical strategies that allow, you know, let, let's identify, um, actually, hang on, I am, emailing you a PDF of, oh, um, so like, here's some of the questions. Uh, when I smell a delicious food, I find it very difficult to keep from eating. When I feel anxious, I find myself eating. 
when I start eating, I just can't seem to stop. Like it's got these 18 questions. Um, although this doesn't have the score, uh, the scoring system that basically show where you fall on these different constructs. And you know, that, that might be some stuff. There's some behavioral things that have really come out of the literature, uh, mental contrasting and, uh, implementation, it's called II, uh, intention implementations, um, which I think, I wrote about that a lot in this book that's on hold right now because I think it's really fascinating stuff, is helping people to identify what they expect to get out of it along with what roadblocks do you think you're going to run into. And we all have kind of different individual issues, whether it's I work in an office, people bring in cake every day because that's part of office culture. I want to stick to my diet, but I've got a husband and kids or a wife and kids or whatever. I'm, I paid to be, you know, uh, a, a cis scum white male and assume traditional binary gender roles. But, you know, whatever, my significant other and my children, I have to, I don't want to have to cook separate meals for them. I, whatever it is, I work in a, I, a guy down here in town trying to stick to his, well, he works in a restaurant that's very bread heavy. Well, actually, I'm sorry. He's the owner. He has to taste everything. Mm. This is part of his career and his life. How do you get someone like that to control their calorie intake? It's not like, so the, these are some of those issues that um, often sort of get looked over because it's like, oh, just, just change your diet, change your activity, and never leave the house. And, uh, you know, that, that's the typical fitness community bodybuilder approach. You don't go to any social events. You never leave the house. You keep the same 12 foods in your uh, house because that's all you, you know. That's fine and it works, but it doesn't, it's not realistic for most people. I just sent you a PDF just because I think it might be interesting to you. Um, but yeah, so like it sounds to me like you've got a combination of, again, restraint. You have to be restrained to lose fat. Clearly, if you're eating anything you want, you better take a lot of drugs. Um, and even then, but if you also have high disinhibition, you may have a different set of considerations than someone who's restrained but doesn't easily become disinhibited. They can stick to their diet in the face of anything. Yeah. So maybe, you know, maybe an interesting study or an interesting survey, find the people who are successful or unsuccessful at like if it fits your macros. It may very well be that they're highly restrained but not easily disinhibited. And maybe the people that try and fall off the wagon highly restrained and easily that it's great to go. You can eat this and don't worry about it and don't stress. Well, it's like telling a cat to dog. If they're not wired to do that or not able to make that behavioral shift or just set up practical limits, you know, if you didn't have stuff in your house to eat the day that that, that dietary lapse happened, you wouldn't eat it. You may very well have gotten dressed and gone to the mini mart, but you know, it's, you sometimes have to come up with just practical approaches to this stuff. Yeah, and I guess my, my best tip right now for people and, and what I practice myself and it helped a ton is this concept of deliberate practice, which is like actually pu putting yourself in the situations where it's, it's challenging for you. And like it, it might be viable to, you know, sometimes consciously practice putting yourself into these situations and, and replacing your actions with a different set of actions and, and just... Because basically you're training your brain to break certain habit, habitual patterns and replace them with other behaviors. And over time, your brain will get trained to those things, which is, is work. Which is funny because it's like training a dog. 
it's basically, you know, if you've got a dog that's doing something you dislike, you, you may not be able to stop that behavior. You can displace them or redirect them into a different behavior. Oh, you're jumping and I can't get you to stop jumping. Well, if you start to jump up, I'm going to catch you and I'm going to teach you that when you get that urge, we're going to go do something else. That's where those, those implementation intentions and mm-hmm. implementations come from. And this is, I think, one of the most – I've never seen anybody really write about it, and I shouldn't talk about it till that book's done, but that's going to be – who knows. So the, the basic idea of an implement, intention implementation is it's a, a phrase in the sense of if I do X, I will do Y. And the key is that these are – both that the what I will do is a positive, right? And again, this is that inclusive versus exclusive mindset Eric talks about. Most people think of their diet and what they can't eat. Man, I can't eat cookies. Well, now you want cookies. Man, I can't eat. Focus on what you can't eat. Turn, turn it into a positive rather than a negative um, psychological ideation. But the intention implementation says, okay, uh, if I... Over, you know, if I eat 300 more calories more than my goal, I will go for a 10-minute walk. Whatever, whatever it is, if I have the urge to have a snack, I will wait 10 minutes. Because frequently, frequently, what we think of as hunger or even cravings, they're just they're more psychological than physiological. You know, or there's the whole thing about signs when you're hungry, you're really thirsty. If I have a food craving. I'll drink a glass of water. A, you're redirecting that behavior. To your point, eventually that becomes automated. The good thing about the in, intention implementation is A, you're, 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 you're usually working. Ideally, you figure it out up front, but this can become A, well, I screwed up, so I need to put in, I need to put in this II to fix this problem, right? If I'm at the office and there's cake, I will not even, I will politely decline, whatever it is. Like I said, you never make it in a negative. It's never, if I see cake, I will not eat it. That is not how you use these things. It has to be a positive action because you don't want to focus on what you can't do. Focus on what you can do that's a better behavior or even a better, worse behavior. If there is cake, I will have a small piece, assuming you can do that and not bury your face in it, which is what I would do because cake is awesome. But whatever it is, now maybe you had the office party and you tasted the cake and you went, okay, fine. You put in the II. If there is a cake party at the office, I will politely decline or I will go to my cubicle and work so that you're not there, whatever it is. And you can put these up front. But one of the nice things is, A, it, it puts it on automatic. By putting this this in your brain, it doesn't become a choice. And that gets back to the willpower thing. If you're faced with that environment and you go, oh man, I want that cake. Shouldn't have that cake. And you just got done doing something exhausting at your your computer. Well, your willpower is depleted or whatever model you want to use. You're stressed, you're going to do it. If you put it on automatic, you don't have to think about it. It removes that choice from you. If this, I will do this. I've at least seen one paper that they last for a few weeks. If you put that one in your head now, it will actually be like an automatic behavior for the next three weeks or so, somewhere in that range. So these are like, it's so simple too. It's such a simple behavioral concept that seems to have so much potential and so much power because it's subconscious, 
It's automatic. It can be done. If you identify a roadblock ahead of time, it can be put in. If you have a lapse and can positively go, well, this happened, I'm going to learn from it and fix it going forwards, it can be done then. And it's like, I, I, w- I wish it was, it, but again, this is where I think a lot of the, the success is going to come from is addressing these behavioral aspects of it. So again, lean people are successful, at least acutely. They don't have the problems. Clearly, we are failing in how we are addressing obesity treatment because we focused too much. Like I said, if I see another damn study that shows that fiber causes people to eat less, I'm just going <laughs> to shoot somebody. Dude, we don't, need, we don't need this. We know that salad is good for you. We, we, for God's sake... It doesn't, there is no perfect diet. We know this now. Move on. Find out how to get people to stick to this stuff. And that's going to mean changing behavior and psychology, which yeah. is much harder, but will be much more beneficial. Yeah, yeah, that's that's exactly true. And and, and the very last thing I want to ask you about is, um, because, because it's also um, a big uh, part of your focus is this whole concept of aggressive versus slow dieting, which seems like seems like a, a side sidetrack, but not really because it because how people approach diet and the timeline of a diet and how people get into what kind of mindset they have when they get into a diet and what they expect from it has a massive impact on the psychological aspects. So as you know, generally the slow dieting is advocated and you know just lose a pound a week. So and so what kind of implications do you think it has and, and which one is more appropriate for, for whom, in your opinion? This, you know, this, this is kind of a pros and cons issue, right? So on the one hand, right, so moderate dieting typically takes moderate changes, right? I talked about the diet soda guy. The idea is we make a small change. We wait till that becomes a habit. We make another small change. We know that habits take a lot longer to become automatic. Like the three-week thing is total bull. It's more like up to over up to a year. And I think there's also a direct relationship. The more entrenched a habit is, the longer it's going to take to change. Like people think in terms of an eight-week diet or a four-week diet your taste buds don't even change for three to six weeks. Like your taste for food takes at least that long to start, which actually getting back to the whole flexible dieting strategies, there's another ish consideration, right? Some people are hyper tasters, but taste buds change, right? In the South, everybody uses tons of salt because if you use a lot of salt, you don't taste it as much and use more and more and more and more and more. And along with brain neurochemistry, this happens with palatable foods. Let me take three to six weeks for your taste buds to, and they do, they turn over and they will change. Well, if you tell someone who's just trying to get certain foods out of their diet, whether it's high fat, high sugar, doesn't matter. And two weeks in you go, eat some of this. Well, guess what? They are right back to where they started. You may need to wait six to eight weeks for their taste buds to downregulate. Now a much smaller amount of food or a less sweet food may taste sweeter to them. Frequently people who haven't eaten a certain food for a while will have it and go, oh my God, that's just way too much for me. Something that they barely tasted six weeks. So there's another reason to potentially wait with some of these specific uh, flexible diet strategies. You need to give not only their habits time to change, their behavior time to change, but physiological changes like taste buds and things of that nature. So anyway, but that's the basic idea behind moderate dieting. And there's much to be said for that. However, 
And this is something, again, the lean versus the overweight person. A lean person who's dieting from 15 to 8%, when you work those numbers, they're losing maybe 12 pounds of fat or whatever it works out to. It's in that, for, it's in that range. Women, I did some numbers. To take a 150-pound woman from 24% body fat, 10%, it's about a 20-pound fat loss total. Now, she may be looking at six months of dieting because lean women and lean men take a lot longer. However, in an absolute sense, one pound a week is not very long. Now consider an obese person has 100 pounds to lose. Are you really going to tell them? This is going to take, at a pound a week, this is going to take 100 weeks. And that's assuming it all comes off continuously, which, it never, which we know it doesn't. That's impossible, right? That's like telling you, you're going to drive across the country. Now, you can go 60 miles an hour and make it you know, in 24 hours, or you can go 10 miles an hour, and it's going to take you three months. Psychologically, that's impossible. And so, the, the, so that's an argument for relatively faster. Right Now, of course, more aggressive dieting requires more aggressive approaches. The typical argument has been, oh, we know that people who use these extreme diets, crash diets, low, super low-calorie diets, rebound. Well, yes and no. There is research that faster rates of weight loss are actually superior. Now, there's two things going on here. One is that people who are successful with weight loss may lose weight faster, right? It is possible that cause and effect are reversed here. Perhaps people with good genetics lose weight faster and are more successful in the long run. But there's also the issue, there's a psychological issue. Uh, if you've got someone with 100 pounds to lose, they need that instant reward, right? When I train beginners in the gym, I always start them super light. I probably start them too light because, A, it doesn't matter. B, I don't want to break them. But, C, the next workout, they'll feel improvements. That's instant reward. You want positive reinforcement instantaneously. And, again, this is how you train dogs, believe it or not. You give them reward as quickly as you can because they need to see that what they're doing is beneficial. And that's why I think resistance training, relatively better than cardio. Cardio takes four to six weeks to see a fitness improvement. Weight training, workout one to workout two. These are people that may have done the gym, felt terrible, had a bad experience, bad high school pee, whatever it is. If you don't give them success for the first three months, they're leaving. If you beat up on them, if you make them feel stupid, if you give them movement, they can't. Same thing with diet. You need to see success. That's why low-carb diets are so popular. You drop five to seven pounds of water in three days. Woohoo! I'm already well. Unfortunately, you're not because it doesn't matter. But that is, but and, and of course, the, the drawback is when they eat carbs, they gain five to seven pounds and they lose their ever-loving minds. But seeing that rapid result result is a key. This is also another problem with dieting, right? Like I said, that a dieting is different than, than drug is that it gets harder as you go. The same thing happens with weight loss, right? Early on, you make small changes. You lose two or three pounds a week. It's all good. It's easy. Weight's coming off. Later in the diet, you are suffering to lose a pound. You are just killing you. You're hungry all the time. You're killing yourself for less reward. And this is not a good behavioral strategy. You shouldn't get less reward for more work. But there's yeah. a psychological, right? But athletes deliver practice, right? We know that. When you start doing something, little work gets you a lot of results. Less work, more work gets you less results. An elite athlete trains 30 hours a week for a year to get that much of an improvement. For them, it's worth it.
because it's part of the psychology of the elite athlete. But in the dieting context, that is the opposite of how it should be. You should have to work harder for more results, not harder for less. So you've got that. So anyway, the, the aggressive dieting approach does backfire if it is based around liquid foods that have nothing, don't reteach good eating habits, that don't include exercise, that don't include a behavioral component. And that's what most of them are, that slim fast crap. You go, oh, we're going to give them 400 calories a day of a liquid nutrient gruel. That is not, this does not do anything to reteach eating habits. It takes the weight off quickly, make no mistake, but that doesn't work. So invariably, there's a big difference between teaching someone good eating habits, giving them a whole food aggressive diet that includes exercise, getting some quick weight loss, and giving them a liquid that's unsustainable. So, right, so my rapid fat loss diet, plug, 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 I wrote it based around that. It is a, it is a very low calorie. It is a modified protein sparing modified fast, which basically it's based around protein because that spares lean body mass loss. It's most filling, maintains blood sugar. We all know the benefits of protein. But it's based around whole foods. It's based around a diet of proteins, vegetables, and essential fats. And I defy anyone to argue with that combination of, right, all, all – all the required nutrients are there. So even while it's causing this super rapid fat loss, it's controlling hunger, it's nutritionally adequate, and it provides nutritional base to add to, right? When you want to come to a more moderate diet, it is already an include it is now what can I add to this? Well, maybe you add some fruit, you got a little more dietary fat, you can add some starches, assuming you know, a little bit fatty, whatever it is. So rather than going, here's six weeks on protein shakes. Now I want you to switch to whole foods that you have no concept of what you should be eating. We've now established this baseline eating that should be part of any diet, right? Lean pro plenty of protein, fruits and vegetables, and essential fat should be part of any diet. I don't give a damn what the rest of it is. That's context specific. Exercise is part of it. Focus on weight training. Cardio can come in. You know, this is another issue we forget. The overweight individual cannot burn a lot of calories with exercise. I'm sorry, a 300 pound person does not have the fitness or the ability. They can build up to it, but it may take four to six months to be able to burn a few hundred calories. This is not an effective way to live. It's got to come from diet. And they have more room. Someone eating 5,000 calories a day, hell, even a 2,000 calorie diet is enormous for them. Yeah. Put them on eight, you know, five pound, Five pounds true fat loss is not unheard of with a protein sparing modified fast. Not weight loss. They'll lose 10 pounds more from water. Three to five pounds of fat loss, true fat loss in a week. Now, it's not sustainable for a long term. However, you can use that for four to six weeks to get that quick reward, get that quick result. We've established, we've given their, their taste buds time to change. We've established some better habits. As they're losing weight, their activity is probably going up. There's kind of an oddity, right? Non-exercise activity thermogenesis typically goes down with the diet. But in very overweight people, frequently it goes up. Because when you're 350 pounds, you don't move around a lot. And once you've lost 50 pounds, it's easier. So frequently meat will go up in that population, depending. Um, activity becomes easier. Life becomes easier. They're seeing, hopefully, intrinsic rewards. The weight loss is great. And it's like, wow, I can function. I can do things in my life that I couldn't do. Um, I had a client once, a uh, woman, she wanted to lose weight, like all women. It's slow. It always is. 
Six weeks in, she came in and she goes, you know what, I went camping with my, my husband and kids and I was able to carry my kids on my back and not get, it changed her entire attitude towards exercise. Hmm. Moved from a purely extrinsic scale to an intrinsic, I can enjoy my life better. I can enjoy my kids. I can do stuff that I couldn't do before. That's when you start to see that shift. And so, I, so aggressive can have its benefits. Moderate can have its benefits. One thing I think it's overlooked is it's not an either or. Frequently using a four to six week aggressive diet to get that quick reward, to get that quick result thing that makes them feel like, and then move into a moderate, more moderate approach and slow things down tends to work really, really, really well. Um, and I think that's something that, that can, is all, yeah, but again, aggressive approaches do not work for all people. That's a learning thing. Um, it depends on how it's set up, but it does depend on the person. And that's something you unfortunately can only learn after the fact as well. We tried this, they were good for four weeks and then they just blew the hell up. And again, in hindsight, I was very adamant about flexible dieting and free meals and all those strategies. I might, you know, for the average overweight person, I might say, wait, just diet. It's easy. The first six weeks, nobody's hungry on that diet. All the protein, all the vegetables, they, they feel great. Blood sugar is stable, whatever, they, ketones, nah, nah, nah. and, you know, whatever, not even going to get into that. But four to six weeks in, now, okay, now we can consider, you know, working on getting, you know, again, we're looking at a long time frame here. People think, oh, going to diet for a month. No, we're looking, behavior change takes forever, weeks, months, years. And even then people get so focused on, you know, I dieted for three months, fell off the wagon for a week and gained two pounds back. Well, who cares? You've lost 30. Rather than losing your mind and going, well, I might as well throw it all away. No, get back on the wagon. You know what to do. That's the self-determination theory. It has all these different components, but one, you know, one, and I don't, the details escape me at the moment, but part of it is, you know, you need, uh, oh, self-efficacy, right? It's what have I accomplished? You build self-efficacy through success, through your behaviors. You build self-efficacy in the gym by succeeding at your goals, which is why with my beginner clients, I didn't want them to fail ever for the first six to 12 weeks. I wanted to see, and I, again, I had to use some tricks. I had to kind of fake it so they never felt like they were failing, and, but it worked, and I don't care. This is a beginner. Okay, if you're a high-level athlete and you come and go, I got four weeks before camp, you're going to be trained very, very differently because if missing a rep means that you're going to get crushed, you're not cut out to be an elite athlete. I'm sorry. Beginner, it's totally different. And again, as trainers, we forget that. You love going in and just, you don't, you don't murder yourself. You didn't succeed. If you get out of the beginner, they never come back. So you, you build self-efficacy in the gym. You build self-efficacy, but you have to, that's where that psychology of you're either successful or you're unsuccessful is so damaging is rather than focus on the month that I was successful with my diet, I'm going to focus on that day that I blew it. Yeah. I think, and I think some of it is human nature. I think, but I think a lot of it comes out of that's the kind of behavior, the kind of things that often get, especially out of the clean eating compete a lot. Of, but I, even in the general dieting stuff, there's just this pervasive attitude and that you must be a hundred percent. You must be, stick to the diet or you're failing as a person. And like I said, you don't see this in other domains. You, the, the drug addiction literature got over this years ago because it doesn't work. When you have a lapse, learn from it. 
and move forward with your damn life because it's a day or even it's a week. Fine, one week against the 12, you did things right. Remember the times you did it right and get right back because you know what to do now. So anyway. Yeah, yeah. And, and actually, that, that's exactly what I like to do when I go from, let's say, 15% body fat, fat down to 10 I, I like to start off aggressive. Like I start to almost implement what your aggressive uh, fat loss protocol is. Like create a large deficit because initially the motivation is high, the body fat is high. So the platform is well set up for, a, for an assertive approach. And then I have the mindset that this is only getting easier from here on. And it's actually funny, you know, Eric, again, when we did this webinar, he, he talked about that. And, and what most people do it the other way around is they diet gradually at the front when metabolism is good, when hunger is controlled, when they've got more body fat, which means you got less chance of losing lean body mass, and then they diet harder as they get closer because they're behind. It's actually better, it's very much better to do it the other way around. When you're heavier, when you've got more body fat, you can lose faster. That's why someone at 40% body fat can lose five pounds of fat a week. Someone at 15% can lose a pound to a pound and a half, you know, or whatever, one to one and a half percent of their current weight. But as you get leaner and the body's fighting back harder and your hunger's getting worse, if you slow the rate of fat loss, it means the deficit, the relative deficit actually shrinks when you're yeah. hungrier, when your body's fighting, when you've got less calories to play with to be able to stay full, sustain performance, not cause all the, you know, and the same thing, the number of, of days at maintenance is going up. So the, you know, so you go from six diet days and one day at maintenance to five and two to maybe four and three, which is usually about the limit, which is funny because that's my ultimate diet too anyway. And, but you move, you know, you move from harder to easier and that's completely reverse of what most people think about doing. Because again, for the overweight individual too, dieting is easy in the first four to six weeks. It's super easy. It gets harder as you go. So starting aggressive and moving to more moderate makes perfect sense, but most people do it the other way around and they make their lives harder through that choice. So absolutely. Yeah, yeah. and also like speaking of cravings and everything, doing a severe diet sometimes, and I talked about this with uh, Berge Fagerdi not that long ago, that doing an aggressive diet occasionally can be the perfect way to kind of reset your baseline in terms of cravings and everything. This is a really, this is an odd little data point. And one of these days I should look into this. A lot of early, there are studies that show that fat, complete fasting makes people less hungry than very low calories. Mm -hmm. Now, this seems completely bizarre. How can eating nothing make you less hungry than eating something? But there is a weird thing I see in a lot of people, and you probably experience this. I certainly have, and I think this is a lot of why intermittent fasting both works and can go so very wrong. Sometimes eating in and of itself makes people want to eat more. And I don't mm -hmm. know if it's triggering a dopamine burst or a taste bud thing, or flipping a psychological switch. I don't know what the mechanism is, but it is an observable phenomenon. So for some people, and it's like the, 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 the French fry thing for you, or it's like the conceptualizing, a food you don't eat, you just simply don't eat. Well, if you don't eat, you don't eat, right? If you are completely fasting, you simply don't eat. And whether or not that is sustainable or, you know, or whatever is a different issue. But 
you know, obviously a lean athlete, you would never do that. They're going to lose muscle mass. You know, when you're dealing with the obese individual, A, the amount of, of lean body mass loss is very tiny in the first place. There's also, they may have to lose, there's connective tissue and stuff that, that builds up. Most obesity researchers accept about 25% lean body mass because they gained that becoming obese so they can lose it. Nobody really cares. And you know, there's that weird little case study of that guy that was fasted completely for 382 days. All he was given was water, electrolytes, and a multivitamin. Yeah. 382, and he lost, it was some ungodly, it was like 250 or like he went from obese to super skin. I don't know what happened in the long term, but as long as you're getting the, the micronutrients, you know, you apparently can do that. You've got enough fat to do it. Now, again, a lean athlete wouldn't want to do that, and you'd have to at least have some protein. And that's, you know, fat, essential fatty acids are great. They're actually, you can get away with not having them for a while. Um, and, you know, you won't get a true deficiency. It may not be optimal. But, yeah, it's, it's really interesting in that regards. And whether that's a psychological reset, a physiological reset, I do think there is you know, getting again, quickly off topic for a lot of people, dieting is easy. Gaining weight is easy and maintenance is a pain in the ass because it is this weird nebulous area where you don't feel like you're progressing towards your goals. You don't feel like you're progressing towards a different goal of gaining muscle mass. It's this weird. And when a lot of people, when they come off their diet, it's like a psychological switch flips well, I'm no longer dieting, and they, they do tend to lose food control, even if they're on the most flexible, fantastic fat loss diet ever. Now, that gets into a different psychology. They, they talk about you can, oh, God, what are the terms? It's been too many years. You can, like, there there's an approach psychology, and there's a, it's not a resistance psychology. Essentially, you can either think of a goal as either trying to approach a goal or prevent a downside. I forget what the terms are specifically, a bunch of social psychology stuff that, that I don't keep up with right now. And so when you're trying and, and how you conceptualize a goal, so basically there's a difference in trying to improve your fitness versus trying to prevent fitness loss. These are different goals and the psychology is different. So when you're trying to actively lose fat, you are in an approach mindset and again, the terminology is wrong here. And when you're trying to prevent weight regain, you're in a whatever the opposite of that is. Whatever the opposite avoidance of that is. Yeah, yes, thank you. It's an approach avoidance. Thank you very much. You are in an avoidance mindset. And how you conceptualize those goals can be very different. Am I trying to move forwards or prevent moving backwards? And these are different things. So I do think frequently it's you know, doing a short aggressive diet within a longer diet, not only kind of, it just kind of mentally flips that switch harder and go, you know, cause you do, you, you, you're like, ah, diet's going okay. I can be a little less rigid about it. I can be a little bit looser with it. And then you kind of a little bit of loose starts to become a little more loose. And then suddenly you're not dieting anymore. Um, I've done that before. It's the like, Oh, I'm hungry. I'm just going to refeed today and the next day. Yeah, you know, I've been pretty good for the last week. I think I'm going to refeed again. <laughs> and suddenly yeah. you're not dieting for five days. And um, so I, I, I have to wonder if it's not just like some sort of, it's just like a mental reboot on, I have to refocus on my goals. And that's another, another social psychology component is, you know, 
Like for example, there's, we know that people, they've shown that people who weigh every morning, which is often thought of as a negative, are often more successful with their weight loss goals. And a lot of it is because it's priming, it's, it's not a priming component. It basically makes them aware of their goal for the day. You get on the scale and it sort of puts you in the mindset of, okay, I am currently dieting. It's, it's refocusing you on your goal. And for a lean athlete, maybe that's where the aggressive approach, just like, yep, this is what I'm doing and this is going to get me back on track. Yeah, no, that that's a brilliant, brilliant points you, you just brought up. And I mean, this would <laughs> maybe, maybe we can touch on this on another day, but I'm but you like, I'm sure you know, but it is a massive issue with with guys uh, ending a diet and uh, like bodybuilder guys or like even recreational trainees ending a cut and then tr transitioning into a slow gaining phase. It is a massive issue because not because like where do all the behaviors go that you developed, you know, being excited to wake up in the morning to step on the scale and seeing a new low and, and doing all these things. What are you going to replace all those, you know, psychological triggers and, and just just things with that? That's a huge issue. And, and sometimes guys find it even harder to get into the mindset of, OK, I'm not dieting anymore. I'm well fed, but it's going to be a many months of you know just doing the boring things getting to the gym try to progress slowly and not expect any kind of miraculous change overnight yeah and i think part of it there too is like fat loss is always faster than muscle gain always muscle yeah. gain is just this slow grinding depressing process you know you get that you get that great glycogen rebuild when you go off your diet you're just like i feel huge and then you're looking at a pound maybe two a week if you're lucky it's tedious. It's boring. And again, it's a reward thing. You're just not seeing those rapid benefits that you need. And it's hard. You know, I, you probably do. And I do it too. I eat far better when I'm dieting than when I'm gaining, even if I'm not in maintenance. It's just like, I make sure I get my vegetable because you just don't have the calories. Suddenly you're just not getting as many vegetables because bagels and breads that you didn't get to eat are far more enjoyable. Um, all that sort of things that um can can become very important uh so yeah it's it is a it's a very different psychology i'm always very impressed by guys that can can stay really adherent to their diet really strictly in a gaining phase because i do think it's psychologically a lot harder it's very easy to go yep as long as i get my protein and calories and of course i'm getting bulking so i need to uh I need to have that ice cream at bedtime. I got to stay anabolic, man. I got to have that. I got to have that plan <laughs> of ice cream. Um, make sure I get, get all those calories to support muscle growth when what you need is about 300 a day. Maybe just quickly, just cause I was going to bug me. Uh, they're actually called promotion or prevention goals. It's not approach avoidance, which is okay. defined as promotion goals are based around the idea of achieving something or fulfilling aspirations while prevention-based goals are more about preventing losses. So fat loss is basically a promotion goal, trying to achieve a goal, whereas prevention would apply during the, the weight loss effect. So there's, it comes from a paper by Fugelstad called Getting There and Hanging On, the Effect of Regulatory Focus on Performance in Smoking and Weight Loss Interventions. So focus on what you're trying to accomplish and what you are doing while losing fat and then focus on what you're trying to prevent when you reach maintenance. So again, there's just that kind of that psychological, that attitudinal shift that, that needs to occur um, based on 
what you're trying to achieve or prevent from occurring. So anyway. Right. So perhaps that that's another reason to to find some sort of benchmarks after a diet that you're constantly striving for so that you kind of have a, a carrot in front of you that that's constantly in sight and you can progress towards. It's a, yeah, it's also, it, again, the sort of the, the prevention goal, it's less about having a carrot when you're trying to maintain as making sure, you know, you don't backslide. And that's where a lot, even there, we know that like regular monitoring of body weight, you know, the whole, a lot of stuff that comes out of the National Weight Control Registry is what people do is they start to backslide and they don't know about it and they go to the stretchy pants and suddenly they, you know, oh, suddenly I've regained 30 pounds. Keep, you know, that's where that monitoring is. It's like, oh, my weight's up a little bit, so I need to kind of get back on on track. Um, but that requires monitoring. And it's not about making progress anymore so much as just making sure you're not backsliding. But it, it, it means a psychological shift of, okay, I don't want to let my food habits go back to where they were. I don't want to let my regular gym behaviors fall off. I don't want to lose the habits that I've gained and return to what I was doing before. Cause, cause that's what people do, right? They go, Oh, I want to die. Hi buddy. I want to die for, <laughs> hi Norman. I want to die. You know, I'm going to die for four weeks and expect to stay there. Even if I return to my old habits, well, it doesn't work. It's never worked. Unfortunately, and again, this is like an expectational thing, which you brought up is realistically, until we have way better drugs, weight loss and weight loss maintenance is a lifelong, it's a lifelong uh, act, activity. And there's no getting around that. You know, you, to some degree, you are going to have to monitor your food intake, monitor your activity for life. And that is, and of course, that's very difficult psychologically to, to deal with, is to tell people that, yeah, this is, this is forever. But even there, that means having a sustainable approach, both psychologically, dietarily, activity-wise. That's where, like, these stupid TV shows, ah, biggest loser, 800 calories a day and eight hours of exercise. Well, that's not sustainable. It's not realistic. I, I saw an interview with one of the guys that was in that show afterwards and he regained all the weight and he's like, I keep trying, but you know what? I'm only losing two pounds a week. Now, most of us would kill for two pounds a week, but this is a man that was trained that less than 15 pounds a week is a failure. Yeah. He can never go back. He can never, because he can't do eight hours of exercise a day. It has to be sustainable. And a lot of that, a strictly rigid diet is not sustainable for most people. Having flexible, that's where those flexible attitudes come in. That's where recognizing and, and learning not only behavioral strategies, but that any given day doesn't matter. Even a week doesn't really matter because you can always get back to what you've proven. You And that's where that, that self-efficacy, if you lost 50 pounds over a year, and you gain a couple of them back, you know you succeeded for 52 weeks out of 54. But people, again, will focus on the two that they failed rather than on what they've already proven that they know how to do. Um, so there's all these other these things, but that a lot of that's just educational because that's not in the weight loss literature. The diet books just go, oh, just don't eat this food ever again, and that's all the advice we're going to give you. And getting a lot of these ideas out there um, – I think is going to be a big key to improving, you know, weight loss success. You're never, you know, you're never going to get a hundred percent, but even to improve the numbers based on what we've, we, we failed to do for a hundred years, uh, I think is going to be a big, a big key to that. And a lot of it's just letting people know, here's what, 
you're in store for. Here's what's going to happen, but here's ways we can work around it. And people will go, but that can't work. God, for years, I go, I want you to break your diet for today. I want you to eat more. That can't work. Yeah. Well, it's what you're doing, right? Well, what it, I get into fights with, with clients. I'm doing all this exercise and starving myself. Okay, you need to do this, but that won't work. Okay, well, is what you're doing now working? Well, no. Then let's try something. You know, if you fail 10 times doing something, why don't we try it a little bit differently? I can't guarantee you it will succeed, but I can guarantee you that way we'll fail. Yeah. But it's so hard. People just won't because that is how you diet. You starve yourself for as long as you can stand it and then you quit. So. Yeah. yeah and I, I guess to, to sum up this entire discussion with like one sentence, and I, I guess you you agree or feel free to add to it that like, I think the ultimate goal is, is again, coming back to the flexible attitude is not that you eliminate certain foods for the rest of your life or that you track every food that you ingest to the gram for the rest of your life and be 100% adherent. It's learning to adapt to the certain, like learning to still eat vegetables after the diet, but also being able to go out to town with your friends or go travel somewhere and have some French fries and whatever and, and not turn it into a disaster and kind of maintain that perfect balance between flexibility and restraint. No, I think, yeah, I think that absolutely sums it up. It is, it's the attitude more than the specific behaviors. So yeah, that's absolutely, I agree. Awesome. Cool. Thank you so much, Lyle. A anything that you want to plug or, or anything that you want to mention? Everything's, you know, the website's always there. The face group's always there. The woman's book is still grinding along. They, because of my injury, I may actually crank out like a little bitty ebook on sort of all the nutritional stuff I've gotten into because I got hospital bills to pay. Um, so yeah, nothing, nothing at this point. Hopefully the woman's, I got a couple chapters left on, on that monster project and, uh, that's kind of it right now. Cool. Thank you so much. And uh, maybe your dog wants to say something to the microphone as well. I don't know. Come here, buddy. Come here, buddy. Yeah, he doesn't really do that thing. What's up, buddy? All right. He's the reason everybody watches my podcast. They just want to see him. All right, guys. I hope you enjoyed this interview. If you did, uh, go ahead and subscribe. I put out a new episode every week or so. My goal is always to bring on people who provide the best education and sometimes entertainment to all of you. So if you're interested in receiving more interviews and podcast episodes like this, then click that subscribe button to support this show. And you can also find this episode on iTunes uh, and also on SoundCloud, actually. So if you search for the Sustainable Cell Development Podcast, then you can find it and you can leave a rating or a comment. Uh, it would mean a lot. And yeah, guys, thank you so much for hanging around and make sure to check Lyle McDonald's stuff at bodyrecomposition.com. So yeah, I think that was all I had to say. And thanks, guys. See you next week.